Tucker Carlson is an Episcopalian. Did you know that? He's been an Episcopalian all his life, born and baptized into an Episcopal parish in California, educated at an Episcopal school in Rhode Island, married to the daughter of an Episcopal priest. Carlson is as intimately familiar with the ins and outs of this denomination as almost anyone. I bring him up not to discuss his politics or the implications of his dismissal from Fox News, but to note how different today's church, in which such divisive forces are present, is from the church we hear about in Acts chapter 2. Back then, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. That's not exactly the unity of spirit that comes to mind when you hear that Tucker Carlson is a member of our church, is it? So how did we get here? How did we get from all things in common to I refuse to believe that he is an Episcopalian? <laughs> Today's reading from Acts is yet another story in the afterglow of Pentecost. For the third week in a row, we hear a passage from those first few moments after the Holy Spirit descended from heaven and alighted on each of the apostles. We'll go back and hear that story about the Spirit giving them the ability to speak in other languages four weeks from today when we celebrate Pentecost. But today's lesson is what happened after that, after Peter's sermon, after those who had received his words had repented and been baptized. Now, if you remember what Laura said about Peter's sermon last week, you might notice that given the rather accusatory and blunt nature of Peter's sermon, we might think that the real miracle is that 3,000 people signed up to join the faith that day. But then when we hear what today's reading tells us about how those Christians managed to live in such unity, we discover where the real miracle is. This is the power of the Holy Spirit that a community of diverse people, rich and poor, old and young, male and female, literate and uneducated, Hebrew-speaking and Hellenized, powerful and powerless, Jews from all over the known world, were able to put aside all their differences and all of their individual desires, needs, and concerns and live together in such unity that they could sell all of their possessions, pull together all of their resources, and not fight about it. Now that's a miracle. But don't get me wrong, I don't think this description of spiritual and material unity is some utopian metaphor that modern Christians are supposed to mythologize. I believe that this is an actual literal description of what the community looks like when we are as devoted to Jesus Christ as they were. Devotion is what defined them. Those who had been baptized, the book of Acts tells us, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
Their lives revolved around formation and community. They learned together. They ate together. They prayed together. And the Bible makes it clear that they didn't just do that one day a week. Listen to how the lives of those early Christians is described day by day. As they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. This was not a Sunday morning encounter, but a daily endeavor they took with them everywhere they went. Each day, those Christians went back into the temple, as had been their custom, honoring their commitment to corporate worship and prayer. But their fellowship didn't stop at the temple gate. At night, they went into each other's homes, where the passage tells us they broke bread and ate their food. I think that double description conveys to us that they were nourished both physically and symbolically by the table fellowship they enjoyed with one another. Their hearts were glad. Their lives overflowed with generosity. They praised God. They demonstrated God's goodness to all people, not only to those in their company, but the Bible makes it clear to everyone they shared God's grace, God's riches, God's blessings. This is more than a church. It's more than a collection of believers who figured out a way to get along with each other. This was a community of faith, a group of people bound together in the joyous celebration of God's unlimited goodness. There was no part of their lives that remained untouched by the movement of the Spirit in their midst. Everything they were and everything they had belonged to God. And accordingly, their community grew and grew each day. Don't we want to be a part of something like that? Don't we want to immerse ourselves in God's goodness until the blessings become so thick and full that we cannot tell where one person's bounty ends and another person's begins. Don't we believe that that's the kind of unity God wants for us to have, the kind of unity that runs deep into our souls, the kind of unity that has the power to shape the world into a reconciled unity, reconciled with one another and with God? Isn't that what we want, isn't that the peace that passes all understanding? What will we do to make that peace come to the earth? What can we do to make that vision for the world our reality? What decisions can we make? What structures can we put into place? What boundaries can we set? What rules can we establish? What leaders can we elect to be sure that God's dream for the world comes to pass? The answer is none of them. Not one. Our job isn't to make the reign of God come to the earth. That's God's job. And the good news of the Christian faith is that God has already brought that reality to the earth in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our job is to be devoted to that truth. Our job is to devote ourselves to commit ourselves, mind, body, and spirit, time, talent, and treasure to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and the prayers because that is how God's reign comes into our lives. And it is our lives lived together in spirit-filled unity through which God's reign takes hold in this world. Given the state of our church, our country, and the world, it should come as no surprise that that sort of unity will not be established through efforts of power and control. The Holy Spirit doesn't work by empowering us to make our vision for the world a reality. She works by taking hold of us and shaping us until our lives look like God's life and our wheels, our wills mirror God's will. Thus the Spirit does not harden us with invincibility. She softens us to become vulnerable just as Christ was vulnerable. We do not have the power to bring the kind of unity envisioned in Acts chapter 2 into this or any other Christian community, but by allowing the Holy Spirit to take control of our lives, God can and will make that same unity the defining characteristic of our lives and of this congregation. The vision for the church that is laid out for us in the book of Acts is not an economic model for us to follow or a recipe for our communal life. It is simply a description of what the body of Christ looks like when it is animated by the Holy Spirit and filled with God's love. As Willie James Jennings wrote, what is far more dangerous than any plan of shared wealth or fair distribution of goods and services is a God who dares impose on us divine love. Such love will not play fair. In the moment we think something is ours or our people's, that same God will demand we sell it, give it away, or offer more of it in order to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, or shelter the homeless, using it to create the bonds of shared life. If we're going to be a part of that shared life, if we're going to get to that spiritual place where the demands of the Holy Spirit upon us fill our lives with joy and not heartache, with unity and not discord, inspiring enthusiasm instead of reluctance, then we must devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That must be the life we live every single day, because that is how we will learn how much God loves us. That is how we come to trust that God's love for us and for the whole world is full and overflowing. That is how we learn to believe that what God has given us is infinitely more valuable than anything that the world can give. When we know that, the unity that we seek will not be our goal but the life we live, a life we live in God through Jesus Christ and with the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Amen.